You all know this, I don't have to tell you this, but 2020 was, uh, was a pretty hard year, right? It started out as a hopeful year, just like many other years in celebration at New Year's Eve, and but it was a special year because it was a special decade, right? The economy was booming, the Olympics were coming, the holidays all seemed to be lining up perfectly in 2020. Valentine's Day fell on a Friday, July 4th was on a Saturday, Halloween was on a Saturday, even Cinco de Mayo fell on Taco Tuesday. <laughs> My birthday was on a Sunday, I mean it was like the perfect year, wasn't it? But then, March 11th of 2020, the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, a global pandemic. And President Trump and the White House Coronavirus Task Force issued guidelines that they called 15 days to slow the spread. And thus began one of the most difficult years that many of us have ever faced. Following our state's government orders, our church had to close its doors for eight weeks. It was a trying time for everyone, for you and for me. And so I was excited last year. My family and I were going to take a week-long trip to uh, spend in Thanksgiving, at Thanksgiving time, in a cabin in the Rocky Mountains with my wife's side of the family. And we, were going to, uh, we weren't going to see my side of the family on that year because, you know, we were out making this big trip out west. And my mom was in the hospital because she had some fluid around her heart, and she was doing a, just a minor procedure, you know, to get rid of that fluid. It wasn't a huge deal, but I called her on a Friday and said, we just landed in Texas, and we're getting ready to head on to Colorado. Well, we arrived in Denver, Colorado on Friday, November 20th, late, late in the evening, had trouble with a rental car, ended up finally getting one and getting to the hotel very, very late that night. And we got to bed late, and we were fast asleep when we were awoken by my cell phone ringing very, very early in the morning. And at the other end of the line was my sister-in-law, Carrie, and she was crying. She said, Eric, everyone's been trying to call you, but your mom, she had a heart attack in the hospital, and she died early this morning. That was on this day, November 21st, 2020. And it's been a very hard year, and I miss my mom, and I feel for my dad, who's lost his wife of nearly 50 years. And I found out later that my mom was probably ready to go to be with the Lord because she had been suffering so much in these last couple weeks from a disease called Raynaud's disease. It's an incurable disease that causes you to live in constant pain. And the last two weeks of her life, she couldn't even use her hands anymore. She had lost one end of her finger. She was in so much pain and she couldn't use her hands that she had to teach my dad how to do laundry and how to cook for himself. And through all the pain and suffering, my mom never gave up, gave up on her faith in God. And I'm thankful that my mom was a born-again believer because I know that she is in heaven right now. She was trusting in Jesus for her eternal life. And she was also trusting in Jesus for her, through her daily pain. And I'm very thankful that my mom hadn't bought into that health and wealth, that name it and claim it prosperity gospel that is so popular in Christian circles now. Because that kind of stuff is nothing but garbage. And let me, let me tell you something. That, that kind of soft, sappy sentimentalism is nothing but self-centered spirituality. And so much of that so-called Christianity makes God out to be some kind of magical genie 
who wants to bless you all the time with riches and health so you can live your best life now. But the question is, is where does that leave somebody who suffers with chronic pain, debilitating pain, or an incurable disease? Where does that leave a person who's lost someone, someone close to them, a child or a parent? I'll tell you where that leaves that kind of person with no hope and no faith. If you have faith in God and only during the good days and not the bad days, then you do not have faith in God. You have faith only in yourself. And if you are trusting in yourself, you will lead yourself straight to hell. And it doesn't matter how many times you put on a fake smile. Habakkuk has already taught us that the righteous will live by faith. And now he ends the book by demonstrating what it's actually like to live by faith. At the beginning of the book, he began by informing God how God ought to be running the world. And now he ends by trusting that God knows what he's doing and that God will bring about righteous judgment. And because we trust in him, we can rejoice in God who saves us and gives us strength even during the difficult times. We can rejoice in God who saves us and who gives us strength even in difficult times. And in the final four verses of this book, Habakkuk, that we've been in for five weeks, there's four movements of the heart that I want to point out here that teach us how to live out our faith in troubling times. First of all, in verse 16, there's an acceptance of God's judgment. If you look in verse 16, it says, I hear. And we remember in verse 2, at the beginning of his song, he says, I heard. So you have this bookend in 2 and in 16 where he says the same word, I hear and I heard. And so he's, this is kind of the end of his, what he's saying here, his, the point that he's making here, that there's a coming judgment by the nation of Babylon who's coming to judge, to judge Judah. And it's not good news, but he says, I'm going to quietly wait for that day to come upon us. When suffering is a path to someone's redemption, it can be endured in faith. And Habakkuk's faith include repent, his acceptance, I should say, his acceptance of the coming judgment from the nation of Babylon. And God answered Habakkuk's question about justice for his enemies. And basically saying, he knows that this is going to happen in God's time. But for Habakkuk, his fear is still there. You know, we, somebody asked us this week at Bible study, what ever happened to Habakkuk? We know what happened to Daniel and all of his friends. We have that recorded in the book of Daniel, right? They were taken into captivity. They were taken to the nation of Babylon. But whatever happened to Habakkuk, we don't know what happened to him. He could have lost his life. He could have been taken into exile. We really don't know the end of his story. For the just to live by faith means loving and serving him in dying as well as in living. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship. And he said, when Christ calls us, he bids us to come and to die to ourselves. That's the call. That's the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus. When Jesus told his disciples he was going to be put to death, they didn't believe him. They didn't realize that was the end, was death. And in the same way, if you remember from Habakkuk chapter 1, he doesn't believe that God might possibly lead some of the, his people to death. In the end, he believes that God's promise is trustworthy, even if that means the destruction of the temple, and even if that means waiting for a, a restoration in the end. 
But you know what? It leaves him as trembling. Believing leads to trembling. That is a normal response. We see that in scripture here. Habakkuk, his heart was pounding, it says. His stomach was churning. His body, literally his insides trembled at the sound of the word of the Lord and what God is about to do. God is just, and he will bring about right justice because God is all-powerful. And then secondly, in verse 17, it's an acceptance of scarcity or the difficulties in life. Look at what he lists here in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit, as in grapes, be on the vine, the produce of the olive field might fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. The flock is referring to sheep. The herd is referring to cattle here. So he's saying the fig, the grapes, the olives, the fields, the sheep, the cattle, that pretty much covers everything. Everything is gone. What if everything is taken away from you? You have no way to earn money, but more importantly, no food to sustain you, that which brings you life. You know, when the harvest was plentiful, everybody is happy. When things are going well and you're making a lot of money and everybody's healthy, there's a lot of cause for rejoicing. In fact, God said when you bring in the first fruits of the harvest, you rejoice, right? Rejoice for the good things that God has given to you. They were called to rejoice. But what about when there is no harvest? Could God still be good as well? The answer to that question came up in our community group as we've been reading through Gentle and Lowly together. And in it, the author points out the book of Lamentations. We haven't talked much about Lamentations. It was actually written about the same time. A lot of people think by the prophet Jeremiah who preached the same time Habakkuk wrote his oracle down. Lamentations, we don't know exactly who the author is, but it's five chapters of lament. And lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. It's five chapters. The first two chapters in Lamentations are each 22 verses long. The last two chapters are 22 verses long. And the middle chapter is 66 verses long. Now, he even says, we know that the verses and the chapters in our Bibles that we have today were, writ were put in there a few hundred years later. But isn't that interesting, the dynamic there? It just happened to end up that way, right? Well, if you look in the very middle of the very middle chapter, the very middle verse is chapter 3, Lamentations, verse 33. We see the heart of God revealed. And in it, it says that he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So in the statement, the author said here that there is an implicit premise and an explicit statement. The implicit premise, did you hear, is that God will afflict. It's in the previous verses as well. It says, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Though he causes grief. So we believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, good and bad, health and sickness, life and death, comfort, but also pain. And we don't know why God allows pain in our life, but we know that he does allow pain. A good example of this is in the life of the 19th century London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, that I've quoted before. Did you know he was called the Prince of Preachers? Did you know that he would preach um, and write just so much, started so many ministries? And I just finished another biography about Spurgeon, about, and I didn't realize so much about the end of his life, about what he went through, that he suffered from gout and inflammation of the joints that caused severe pain. When he was asked by a friend, what does that feel like 
he explained this. If you put your hand in a vice and let a man press as hard as he can, that is rheumatism. And if he could be got to press a little harder, that is gout. That is the amount of pain that he went through. And he said this prayer, wrote this prayer in his journals. And listen to what he wrote in the honesty of it. And uh, he wrote this. I'll read it in the modern English instead of saying the thou. He says, you are my father, and I am your child, and you as a father are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as you make me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from your face? That was the guy who said that it was the providence of God, of the sovereignty of God that was what he laid his head on, the pillow that he laid his head on at night to rest. I was trusting that somehow that God was still in control and that you can be honest with God even in your pain saying, where is the help? I was shocked when I read that. Like, where is the help? Aren't you going to help me? You know, as Christians, we don't just borrow and say, oh, everything's good. Pain is not actually real. No, it is real. And Spurgeon knew that God could grant him relief because God was sovereign, and that brings comfort. You know, maybe not, it brings comfort, maybe not comfort and relief from the pain, and maybe not comfort because we don't, God doesn't always give us the answer, but we can have comfort that God knows the answer, God does have the answer. Imagine suffering with the idea that there is no possibility of God, that there is no God. That would mean that there was no even explanation, no reason behind any of your suffering. And that means that you would end up suffering physically, but also emotionally, because not only would you be suffering in pain, you would be having a lot of despair and hopelessness into your suffering. At least when we suffer in our body, we can say, God, I don't know why I'm suffering in this way, but I know that you know why, and I don't have the reason, but you have the reason. So I wish you would help me, but when you don't help me, can you at least, at least let me trust that you know what's best? I don't know why you took my loved one from me, but I know you know why, so can you at least help me trust in you and show me your love and comfort and comfort me with the Holy Spirit? Habakkuk was able to face the coming invasion because he knew that God had a purpose in it. You know, other people on the streets of that day they, who didn't really believe in God and didn't trust in God, they could have been overwhelmed with despair and hopelessness when the Babylonians invaded, but Habakkuk knew that this was going to take place and that God had a plan. And remember, God even told Habakkuk in chapter 1, even if I told you the plan, you wouldn't believe me. Well, I'm not even going to tell you the plan. I think that might be the true of us today, right? Is that God knows what he's doing, okay? God's in control. He's got it. I don't know. I mean, I remember my mom had this on the mirror. I, we don't know who holds the future, but we know... Oh, wait. We don't know what the future will hold, but we know who holds the future, Maybe that's why my mom wrote it down, because he can mix it up easy. <laughs> Someday, we'll be able to know that maybe it was because of your suffering that, that God used that to bring somebody else to faith in Christ. So that you know that your suffering was temporary, but eternal life is forever. And someday, in eternity future, you might see what God was doing through your pain and suffering. And you'll be able to look back and say, you know what? It, my suffering was worth it because it was such a small time compared to eternity. You know what? We also know that God, when he causes 
difficulties in our life, we know he's not doing it because he doesn't love us. It's not because he doesn't like us, right? It's not because he's angry with us. Like it says in Lamentations 3.33, God does not afflict from his heart because his heart is the heart of love. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't wish that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. That is who God is. That's who God revealed himself to be to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the great and awesome and powerful God, showing love to thousands of generations. And just because bad things happen in your life doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. We know this from Romans 8, 35 through 39. Romans 8 and 35 through 39, I want to read that to you, which might be familiar with you because it's such a comfort. Whenever we say, God, are you really there? God, do you really love me? It says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know that God loves you and nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why, like Habakkuk, we can have hope and we can praise God. Habakkuk had every reason not to rejoice. Habakkuk was a righteous man. Yet he and other good people uh, he knew that what was coming was bad things for his people, that they were going to suffer hardships and many people were going to die. And ultimately, what's going to happen? No produce in the fields, no animals in the barns. Difficulties were coming, yet he resolved to be joyful and make the best of a bad situation. But more than that, he knows that despite his circumstance that is in life, that God is still good and worthy of praise. No matter how bad life is, God is the source of our hope and our joy. Look at verse 18. Here he shows his resolve to rejoice in the Lord. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, what makes him be able to say this after talking about the bad things that are going to come? It's that God's presence makes all the difference. It's not the content of the message or even the promise that someday that God that Babylon is going to like, ha, you know, have their, they're going to get what's coming to them, I guess you could say. It's more than that, though. It's that God is his with them. God is present with them. And so the, he knows that, the, he, that God has a plan, that God's going to work everything out, and that God's going to be with him and his people through that. So he's able to declare his joy during it. It's because God is present with him, and and. God speaks to him. God responds to him. God addresses him and listens to his questions and then gives him that vision, letting him know that he is with them. And, and, and then what does Habakkuk do? He writes the song. Last week and this week, we were talking about the song of Habakkuk that he gets to sing about what God is doing. 
that he knows that God, and that word rejoice there too, it's like shouting for joy and exaltation. Because he knows that God is doing a work beyond, he, beyond Habakkuk's own understanding, even ability to understand. He says, I can shout for joy. With a loud voice, I can rejoice. Even when everything else is crumbling down around me, I can take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, this verse right here is, is also became very real to our family a few years ago. Whenever my wife's sister and her husband had a child born with a rare liver condition. And he needed many surgeries and treatment, and ultimately, he needed a liver transplant. And even through all of that, there was still a good chance that he wasn't going to survive. And at different times, you know, whenever little Rome would take a, a turn for the worse, we thought, like, this was it, you know? I mean, it was, it was likely that he wasn't going to survive. Maybe you were around back then when our church, we worked with another church to try to raise money for the medical expenses, and we did an event and had church printed up for this event. <laughs> that was called Rally for Rowan, you remember? And on the back of the shirt was this verse from Habakkuk. It says, Yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice if he doesn't make it. And if he does make it, I will rejoice in health or sickness, in life or in death, I will rejoice. And we praise God for what he's done. And Rowan is actually just an active little boy now. He's growing. You know, he still has health issues. He always will his whole life. But, and we are so thankful. We know that not every family can say that. We know that there's actually a child somewhere that, that didn't make it. And that's how Rowan got his liver. And so it's heartbreaking to think of that family, you know. But we rejoice that God somehow had a plan for Rowan. And we, we resolve to say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord and thank God for, for medical advances and thank God for the work that he does through doctors and through other people and so many churches, you know, people praying for him and people coming together all across the country to pray for Rowan. And this verse has just taken a hold of our family's life through that situation. Why does God allow affliction in our lives? Why does God allow difficulties in our life? Well, you know, Paul addressed this time of affliction that he suffered when he was in Asia on a missionary journey, and he was writing back to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's the, actually the third letter, though, that he wrote to the Corinthian church, but he actually said the reason why that he was suffering so much in despair in 2 Corinthians 1, 9 he said that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. That, that's why he went through an affliction in Asia, is because God puts us in difficult times so that we will stop relying on ourselves and instead rely on God. That's why in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, he's able to say, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. He gives sure-footed confidence like that of a deer enable us to to live and to walk to higher grounds it says god the lord is my strength he makes my feet like the deers he makes me tread on my high places that means and even in difficult circumstances god has a higher and a better plan for us so our strength and our hope doesn't come from looking inside of ourselves but in looking outside of ourselves to jesus that's where our strength and our hope comes from when paul is writing 
this letter to the Corinthians, he talks about how the power of the gospel changes us. And it doesn't change our outward bodies. It changes us on the inside. Our outward bodies are still wasting away. They're still like jars of clay, like temporary vessels. That's the, the picture that Paul paints for us. So yeah, you know what? If you become a Christian, God can forgive you your sins, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be healthy and automatically be cured. It doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be able to walk where you couldn't walk or be able to be cured from a sickness that is incurable or something like that. That's not necessarily what it means. And Paul said as much when he said, like, our outward bodies are still wasting away. But God's power works in us, and God's power is revealed in our sicknesses, and God's power is revealed in our weaknesses and through our trials. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 10, it says this, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So Christ is displayed in our weaknesses, and God uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus and to reveal Jesus in us. That's one of the reasons why we go through suffering. Also, uh, another reason is in verse 15 in the same passage. It says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So our affliction spreads the knowledge of the gospel and the grace of God, he says, to more and more people, and then more and more people will have give thanks to God. There will be more thanksgiving, and that will bring God more glory. So he said our affliction led to the spreading of the gospel, which led to more thanksgiving, which made them to God giving more glory. So do not lose heart, he says in verse 16 of that passage. Do not lose heart. And the final reason given in 2 Corinthians 4 is, you know one of the reasons why? Is for our own preparation for glory. He's using this to make us more like Jesus. It says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So God is using this time, and I know that when we are suffering, it doesn't feel like light suffering oftentimes, and it doesn't feel like it's momentary. We're like, it's my whole life. How is that momentary? We'll compare it to all of eternity, Paul says. That little light and momentary affliction, someday, 10,000 years from now, we're going to look back and say, I guess it was just a short amount of time, wasn't it? And what God was doing and what God is doing in your life now is preparing you for that eternal weight of glory that you can't even compare, you can't even think about. And so until that day comes, we must trust in the Lord for our strength, even when times are difficult. We know that God is good. You know how we know that God is good? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know that God is good because Jesus rose from the grave. God is able to bring the dead to life, and that is my hope. That is my strength. I know that he is good. And so even when we have no idea why, even if God took everything that we love, everything that we own, he took everything from us, we can still say, I praise the Lord. 
that I praise God and we can rejoice in God our salvation. This reminds me of a children's book. And if you ever have a child or maybe even yourself, if you're going through a difficult time, there's a children's book that's called The Moon is Always Round. You don't have to look into it. There might be a copy on the bookshelf. And it was written by a father who was in seminary. And he and his wife had a son, a toddler, and they, she was pregnant with another child. And that child didn't survive birth. And so he wrote this book because he had told his son. He took him to the window, and you might have saw him on Friday night. There was a full moon, right? It was really big. It was really round. And he said, look at that. Look how big and how round the moon is. You know, the moon is always round, and God is always good. Well, you know what? In a couple weeks, the moon is not going to be a big round ball, is it? It's going to be like a half moon or a sliver. You won't be able to see it all. But even when you can't see the moon, even when it looks like there's only half a moon, you know what? What shape is the moon? The moon is always round. And what if you can't see it? The moon is always round. And God is always good. We know that God is good because Jesus died and he rose again. So even when the times are dark, even when we feel like God has abandoned us, do not lose heart. Be encouraged. Take joy in the God of your salvation. Trust in the Lord through those difficult times. Trust in God, that God is always there and God is always good. Let us rejoice, for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever.